Ledger is a writing podcast and a passionate soliloquy about many things, not always Star Wars, but sometimes. I'm your host, Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Bella Poynton. Uh, She's a playwright, director, actor, and theater scholar uh, who's currently the director of the Playwrights Wing at First Look Buffalo Theater Company in Buffalo, New York. As I mentioned in the show, I first encountered Bella's work in the Best American Short Plays 2018 through 2019, a collection of short plays edited by John Patrick Bray. Specifically, Bella's short play, 11 Things That Almost Happened to Rick and Hannah, and One Thing That Actually Did, which we talk about briefly at the beginning of the interview. Bella has done a lot of stuff, (laughs) specifically plays. Uh, She's the first official playwright that I've gotten the chance to talk to, um, and she has a lot of awesome accomplishments that, that... really really excited me so that we could we could chat about um she's also the literary manager for post-industrial productions and is also the director of queen city playwrights which is buffalo new york's uh, new play development workshop uh, for career playwrights in western new york she's had her work published in the best 10 minute plays of 2019 the aforementioned best american short plays 2018 through 2019 Uh, Also a book called The Weirdest Plays of 2020. So that kind of gives you a a glimpse into what she's done. She's She's been the finalist for the Christopher Brian Wolk Playwriting Award, the Heidemann Award, uh, the Sam French OOB Festival. Um, she knows what she's talking about when it comes to plays, which is the reason why I wanted to chat with her. Uh, she writes some really intriguing and memorable stuff, um, speculative, sci-fi, fantasy, some not. Um, but she's written things like a, a play about Medusa called Medusa Undone. Speed of Light is another play that's about an alien invasion. She was writing stuff that really challenged what I thought of as the theater. And that's one of the things that I wanted to, to chat with her about. We do talk about writing and, and how she, she does some of the things that she does, but we also kind of end up transitioning to just chat about theater in general. I don't really think it's a bad thing, honestly, because as we discuss in the interview, the writing of a play isn't really finished until the play is being put on. And even then, is it being is it done being written? Uh, that's one of the questions that that we end up talking about. Thinking of things that you would want to put on stage and how you make it happen, and whether or not certain stage directions are impossible, and uh, what you do as as a production team, you know, a director, a playwright, the actors, when you have stage directions that are seemingly impossible uh one of the ones that that bella brings up is and then the world explodes and rains down glitter on everyone how do you how do you do that on stage and and we she discusses that and and we go through what it takes to to make a play happen and what it's like to write a play uh i'm insanely excited i got the chance to chat with her and that you can hear it now make sure you check out all of bella's work go to bellapointon.com That's where you can find her entire resume, all the information uh, about her. You can find, I think, links to her plays that you can download and read if you want to. So, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Bella for for coming on and chatting with me. Uh, As always, you can find my work at austinrwilson.com. I'm on Twitter for now, austinrwilson and ledger underscore podcast. Um, you can also go check out the YouTube channel for the podcast. Uh, there's no video. It's, it's just going to be the podcast audio. Um, but I'm going to be putting up every episode on there.
there as I do them. So this one will be on there. You might even be listening to it there right now. Who knows? Something kind of new. Go to medium.com slash shibboleth, except instead of an L in shibboleth, it's an I. Someone already had shibboleth, and there's nothing on the URL, so that's kind of upsetting. But I'm going to be posting all my new shibboleth stories on that site and really try to use Medium more to to get my stuff out to other people. Um, so if you are on Medium, I would love for you to follow me. I'm also at Austin R. Wilson on Medium um, and kind of every other place. Uh, also, this is cool. Ahoy Comics has a Discord channel now. You can find the link on their Twitter or my Twitter. Uh, and that's where I'll be hanging out sometimes if you want to come over and chat and chat to some of the other people that have created things for Ahoy Comics. Uh, swing by there. Thank you again for listening. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My store, I have two stories in Love Me, Love Me Not, uh, a collection of short shorts out from black hair press it's now officially available to buy they are all valentine's day stories i mean they're about love ostensibly uh but they're all dark i have two stories in that collection so make sure you check the links in the show notes wherever you're listening to this uh either there or my website or you know twitter wherever and grab a copy of love me love me not uh, and read some some dark tales of love lust and lunacy which is one of the the subtitles for the book but as for now check out this interview with bella poynton and we'll catch you on the tail end of it i actually the first time i ever encountered your work um was in the best american short plays 2018 to 2019 uh, wow okay by john patrick bray yeah um you did you wrote a play called 11 things that almost happened to rick and hannah and one thing that actually did um you're the first playwright that i've uh been able to talk to officially i'm sure uh, you know i'm sure other people maybe uh wrote some plays but you're the first official playwright um that play specifically how would you describe that play because i read that play and i was like man I'm going to be thinking about this for a little bit. Uh, and that led to me looking at more of your work and emailing you. So how would you describe that play to someone who has no idea about it? Um, yeah. So first of all, thank you. And yeah. and second of all, shout out to John Patrick Bray, who's fantastic and does a lot of editing of anthologies and, and um, uh, helps kind of get new work out into the community, into the theater community. So yay for him and, and thank you to him. Um, but yeah, so 11 things that happened to Rick and Hannah is like half a joke and half, um, uh, about me and, and a real friend that I have. Uh, I actually haven't, there was a period in my life when he and I were much closer than we are right now. That's for no other reason than just like life stuff. Like we kind of like like went in different directions, but like if he were to text me right now, I'd be like, yeah, let's meet for coffee. Um, uh, and his name is actually Rick. <laughs> um, my name is not Hannah, but, uh, <laughs> but um, he, he's just, he was just such an interesting character and we would like try to meet and he would be very late and he would like always have a new job and like never be in the same spot. And like then would disappear for five months and he'd be like, I was living in, Scotia and now I'm back and like and and like his life was always just a mystery to me he took me 
out hiking once he like insisted that we go hiking he like and I say this because I'm like very boring I'm like I am teaching and then I go home and like make dinner and like go to bed <laughs> like so he, he's very exciting and like he did some theater work at one point um but it's always new right it's always something new with him and I was like how do I write about this a little bit it's not a full-length play it's it's just kind of an idea right yeah. it's like a little one act snippet of, of th- maybe something that happens to you in your life um and then at the <laughs> and then at the same time um I I was just joking with a friend of mine about um like I I wanted to kind of do like a uh, you you might not know who this is. You probably don't know uh, who this is. Um, uh, Christopher, oh gosh, the name is escaping me now. Um, I have to look it up because I'm like on the spot. David Ives. I'm sorry, not Christopher. I was thinking something. David Ives is a playwright who wrote this play called All in the Timing. Uh, it's a collection of like one acts. It's very, very famous amongst theater people. Um, and there's this one play where like this timer goes off and every time the timer goes off, like the, the play restarts. Um, and I was joking with a friend of mine. Um, uh, we, we kind of both love the actor Liam Neeson a lot. And like, we were kind of like, just like joking. And I was saying I should write a play about like 25 things I would say to Liam Neeson if I met him. And so I kind of started writing this funny play where like I walk into a coffee shop and see Liam Neeson and like say something to him and then a bell goes off and I get to come in again and say something else to him. And then a bell goes off and I get to come in again. It it didn't really work as a play because it had no, <laughs> it, it has no like crisis or like climax or, you know, maybe I'll work on it more. But um, it did kind of work in this context with, with Rick and Hannah because they're fictional and and like there really is a conflict between Rick and Hannah like she's trying to like pin him down in some way and he's kind of all over the place um and and they're trying to meet in the middle um and she's much less adventurous um and then they kind of meet finally at the theater where her play is being done right uh and they're able to really kind of talk about that in a real way uh so I would say that that play is um, an experiment I did in in absurdism and uh, kind of writing in the style of David Ives a little bit um, with my own little twist on it um, and and my influence from my friend. But it's definitely absurdist. Um, I I I do teach theater history, so. Um, uh, I, I'm constantly looking at the different movements and being like, oh, this is so interesting. Maybe I want to like experiment with something like this or like that. Um, but it, it has some absurdity to it and it's nonlinear and all of that. So that's what I would say about that play. And I think it's so funny that that's the first play of mine that, that you encountered. Um, usually that's not how it goes. It's usually a full length play that people sure. encounter first. But this is this is great. I'm I'm well, doing I- it. Recently, I, I have been reading a lot of short stuff and, and I, I wanted to learn more about one act plays and, and shorter plays. And um, that's how I ended up finding that book, because I was like, OK, I, I want to read contemporary short plays rather than just 
okay, here's a one act play that was written back in the thirties that everybody always talks about. I wanted to read stuff that was written by someone now. Right. It's weird because as I was reading it, like you said, it's short and you know, it's in a book of short plays. Um, the speculative nature of it and whether you're, this was your intent or not. That was the thing that ended up firing my brain where I was like, why are they, why is this happening? What's going on here that they're repeating this over and over again. And it, I thought about it a lot kind of just as a, an experiment and just a, a fun way. That's obviously one way that I engage with writing is just pour over it again and again. But then when I looked your stuff up and saw, Oh, you have written a lot of speculative stuff. Yeah, um, I have. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, and, and it, it all, and now uh, listeners can't see this, but you have all these sci-fi books behind you. <laughs> I do. And with that, I, I was so interested because I, I didn't grow up uh, within the theater world. I took drama in, in high school, but I, I wasn't in a play, but I've always been interested in, in plays. Um, Neil Simon was the, my big like North star uh, when I was growing up. Um, I still love Neil Simon. Um, <laughs> but seeing your stuff, the speculative stuff you've, you know, which we're, I'm going to get to, to the stuff that you've written. But the big thing that I, that made me so excited is that you could write things that people don't immediately think of when they think of stage work, because from my experience, obviously you're from a different world, but for me, where I grow, grew up in Indiana, if people think of like plays, they think of Broadway and musicals and maybe like intense dramas like The Iceman Cometh and Death of a Salesman and stuff like that. So I was so excited to see your speculative work and be like, oh my gosh, because sci-fi is, I, I love it. So I want to talk to you about writing plays that are not expected, that is work outside of what somebody would think if they would immediately think of uh, a play. Um, do you, did you grow up thinking about sci-fi and, and stage writing together as one? Yes. So <laughs> there's so much happening yeah. right now. Oh my gosh. Um, so I was raised on science fiction. My father is a scientist and, and, um, so I was raised on Star Wars and Star Trek and Dune and, um, you know, 20,000 Leaves Under the Sea being read to me. And, and it, it was just, um, it, it was my, they were my fairy tales. It was my mythology, right? It was the, the, the stories that I was given uh, that kind of formulated my identity. So uh, writing sci-fi has no it's always seemed like well of course that's what that's what you write right. yeah, yeah. um so you know i'm these these stories to me have never seemed odd they've never seemed over the top they've never seemed really even speculative um because i was raised on them so the first great stories that i remember encountering were science fiction stories so to me that that is what good storytelling kind of is. I mean, I recognize that it doesn't have to be, of course, yes, but they're so uh, foundational. <laughs> That's a pun. Uh, for I get me. it. <laughs> <laughs> they're so foundational that um, that it, that 
it, you know, it, it was never, they were never super, well, they were for a period of time separate in my mind because I thought they had to right. be, right? So I, um, I was raised on science fiction, but very, very early on was, was interested in the theater. I mean, when I, my mother says that when I was like three and four, I, I pretended that I was in the circus and I was like, you know, I'm the ring bearer of, you know, the, you know, yeah. uh, pretending that I'm <laughs> kind of like the master of ceremonies of some kind of show. Yeah. Uh, so very early on that, that was there too. And for a period of time, I, I did not think that the twain shall meet. Like, I didn't really understand it. I mean, how could you? It's kind of like a little bit of a jump. Um, and the theater won out. I mean, I, I knew very early on that I wanted to be an I wanted thought I wanted to be an actor. And I went to I went to acting school. Um, I, I went I trained at a conservatory acting school um, for undergrad and you know, worked as an actor for a while, but all during that time, I was also writing plays. I figured out I could write plays very early. I was maybe 12, 14. Uh, and I wrote, (laughs) I wrote a play. I wrote essentially a full length play about like a speakeasy in the twenties run by this woman. And she's like trying to like keep it a secret. And and she gets involved with a cop. And like, I was literally 13 years old writing this. Um, and, uh, that play (laughs) that I wrote when I was 13, I, at the time I was a part of like a youth group at a church and, um, I printed it out and I gave it to the youth group advisor. And I said, can we do this play? And she gave it to the priest who like ran the church and he was like, take out the swears and you can do it. Um, And so that was kind of like, I was like, oh, okay, so I can do this too. Um, And that was literally my first uh, experience with like rewriting a play and like workshopping a play. And like all my friends from youth group, we did this really horrible play (laughs) when we were 12 and 13 years old. Um, and yet it was like an incredibly formative now, like that I look back on it. It was this wildly formative, um, identity, uh, building experience for me. Uh, I went on to acting school and, and while I was in acting school, I had a wonderful teacher. His name was John Lipsky, the late, the, the late great John Lipsky. And he, uh, after speaking to him, he essentially said to me, you're a playwright. Um, and I, of course I was kind of like offended, right? I was like, oh my gosh, how dare you say such a thing? I'm, I'm an, an actor. actor. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought he, in many ways, I thought he was saying like, go, you know, go, go sit in front of the computer. You, you don't belong on stage. And that was not what he was saying. Um, he was just saying that, he could see in me this other thing. Um, and he really encouraged me to, to start to hone that. So, and I did all of the resistant sure. things, right? I was like, sure. no, I don't know how to do it. I know that. So finally I sat down and I, I wrote my first full length play, um, which is a play called Pope Joan. Um, and uh, another play that I wrote kind of concurrently with Pope Joan called A House Full of Dust, which is a ghost story. Neither of those are sci-fi, although they 
both have kind of speculative elements in them. Um, Pope Joan is a, is a history play, but it has a lot to do with, there's a lot of like magic spirituality going on in Pope Joan that's implied. And then, um, House of Dust is like a ghost. There are like ghosts on stage. There's ghosts. So yeah, things are happening. Do you think speculatively plays that deal with things like ghosts or, um, I guess more over the top visuals. Some people would call them that. Um, is that one of the reasons why the, that where you were talking about, like the tw- never the twain shall meet, uh, that sci-fi is so associated with giant ships and lasers and, and things that a- as you're putting a production on, you're like, you're not going to have a star destroyer come onto the stage. Is that a, a thing that holds like at the time when you were writing those plays, did you ever have a moment where you were like, well, I can't write a, I can't write this thing that I have in my head for the stage because it's got robots and holograms in it. And spoiler alert, you, she has written that listener. <laughs> there are those plays now that have those. Yeah, things. I mean, so, and this is actually what I started to grapple with when I was a little bit older. What is science fiction? Yes. And this is partially why I went on and I got my MFA in playwriting and then my PhD uh, in theater performance studies because I was like, how do these things function? Um, Very interested in genre studies, very interested in what makes a thing science fiction, what makes it fantasy, what makes it theater, what makes it drama, blah, blah, blah. Um, So essentially what, what I have come to realize and what many scholars have written is that um, what makes a thing science fiction is not the ships. It's not the explosions. It's not the laser swords, right? It's, it's not any of those things. It's the nature of the relationships and it's, you know, according to Darko Suvin, um, the use of the, of a thing called the novum uh, and, and, essentially uh, this this concept of estrangement and cognition and i can go through that and kind of talk about what that means um so darko suvin right here oh no that's not the darko where is it that's the wrong book but oh it's over there okay anyway but (laughs) um so darko suvin has this book called uh metamorphoses of science fiction where he talks about what science fiction is and it's this estrangement and cognition so essentially what sci-fi does to you is it estranges you in some way from the world right so for example um in a story with time travel the thing that's estranging us that's making it different than the world that we're in is the time travel right because that doesn't exist and yet somehow because that exists the rest of the story has to has to build our cognition up to that point so that we can understand what's going on. So um, it make you know, and he's very influenced by Brecht, who is a theater person, uh, and this idea of making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. So in sci-fi, we're brought into this brand new world in which the familiar becomes strange so what seems familiar to other people in the world is strange to us like 
uh, tell like in in Star Trek, right? Warp speed and 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 beaming up and down, right? To us, that's like, oh my god, like what? How are all of our atoms going to come back together? It's terrifying. It's existentially terrifying, right? Yeah. Like that's unbelievably, and yet they do it all the time. Oh well, yeah, and they're not. Scared. It's like walking through a door to them. Sure, a Stargate walking through a door, right? That kind of stuff. Um, and they ha- that's the novum, right? This thing that makes the world different. And then we are like, oh, it's so mind boggling. That's the thing that makes a piece sci-fi or not. Uh, and, and you know, people have argued, um, you know, for, for Star Wars, for example, what is it that makes Star Wars different than our world? And And quite honestly, like, yes, there's, laser swords and and yes there's big ships but but we have swords and we have ships and maybe theirs go a little faster but really the thing that makes star wars so unbelievably different than our universe is the force and the force is actually a spiritual uh a, a spiritual force right like gravity or something um, it is, and, and in many ways, because it's spiritual, you can argue that Star Wars is actually fantasy, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, yeah. I think that's a strong argument to say that Star Wars actually is a fantasy story. Yeah. I think with having the essentially faith become this like tactile, uh, you, you can see faith <laughs> become yeah. real in Star Wars. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's what the story has kind of always been about yeah. in a way. Um, and, and on some level is kind of what makes it resonate so much with people. I think is that like exactly what you just said, like faith becomes faith becomes You can see it. It happens, yep. right? There's proof that there's something larger. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so so this this idea that really it's not the ships and the lasers and the um, the explosions, but the nature of estrangement and cognition, right? The nature of exploring Novum, uh, that's what makes something sci-fi. Well, you can do that on stage. Right. And, yeah, and you can do that on stage in really cool ways. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not about the visualization. It's about visualization. It's about talking about concepts and really like, honestly, when I'm watching <laughs> sci-fi stuff, sometimes I like fast forward through like the fights, <laughs> like I'm not interested. I want to, I want to hear them talk about ideas. Um, I want conflict between people. That's not necessarily like, you know, shootouts. That's why. And I, I won't let us go too far into Star Wars because I know it could derail the entire podcast and we could just talk about it. Did you did you watch Andor? I did. I did. So I adore that show. I yeah, it's think great. it's Excellent. fantastic. And it's the thing you just said. Fast forward through the fights and like you want to see the conflict and the people talking like that's what the show is. Mm-hmm. And for me, watching sci-fi that focuses on that it does go past those things like, yeah, there's really cool technology and there's um, amazing visuals, but the relationships and the, like the social aspect of the, of the story, which you are putting on the stage in your plays. Yeah. 
you build this. The, it's almost like the sci-fi is like insulated by that thing or maybe vice versa. Yeah. No, I get it. And, and you know, there's <laughs> like my two, the, I'm thinking of two of my plays right now, but like there's, if they were to be turned into movies, there's ample opportunity to kind of like show the fights that they get sure. in. They're just not in the play because they're not necessary. Like I'm way more interested in having my characters talk to each other and and get at real conflict and real problems and get to the bottom of that than I am in like watching some kind of like space invasion. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's since I've never talked to a playwright before. Um, that was one of my big questions from, from a writing standpoint is because, you know, there's all these things that people say about writing screenplays, you know, do this, don't do this, mm. do this, don't do this. One of the things that I love about theater, uh, and, and playwriting is that combination of auditory and visual storytelling and the actors. I don't know if this is like a wrongheaded way to think of it, but the actors being the medium that your words become the story because the actors are bringing them to life. Obviously there's, you know, directors and uh, uh, everyone else helping, you know, put the the play on, but you're really writing for someone to speak the the words. Yeah. Does that affect how you're writing them ever? Like, because that's one thing people talk about. Don't worry about what the audience is going to think, write your story. But in this, in this case, you're writing for someone else to, to say the, the words and bring them to life. And does that affect you as you're writing, thinking about, actors having to interpret what you're doing or how are you contemplating actors turning your words into, into a performance if, if you're even contemplating it? Yeah, no. So you, so what you said was really quite wonderful um, and profound that the actor is the medium, right? So uh, the, it, the dialogue is really the medium of theater in many ways, liveness, right? Being there live and then, and then dialogue. So dialogue really is the is the main mode of meaning making that we have in theater. In film, it's it's not dialogue, right? It's imagery. It's the time image. But I have always gravitated towards language uh, and and what language can do and what specifically dialogue can do. What can be achieved in a conversation between people, um, and that is what I thrive writing. That's how I thrive writing. That's the, the, the medium through which I most comfortably tell stories. I am always thinking about the, res the, the response of the actor because I trained first as an actor and, and being an actor trains you very, very well for, you know, is this going to work on stage? <laughs> um, uh, acting is action. So when I went to school for playwriting, was writing plays at Iowa, in Iowa, I, you know, a, a play is just a series of actions, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Uh, and, and it's nothing else but that. So I am always thinking as an actor as well, is this going to be engaging for an actor? So I kind of play this double role actor playwright as I'm writing a play. Uh, but I don't have to think about it because it's just, <laughs> this sounds silly, but it's kind of innate. Like it's, I, I've done it a lot and I've been thinking that way since very, since I was very young, since I was kind of a teenager really. So it's an easy way for me to think. 
it's actually much harder for me to write screenplays because I have to not think in terms of language and I have to think in terms of imagery or, you know, stage direction and like where the camera is. And that to me is not natural at all to think in terms of imagery. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I I really think it does. And (laughs) the other thing sort of piggybacking on that question is as you're writing a play, not necessarily from a dialogue standpoint, but just from a storytelling standpoint, do you ever, or did you at once have to struggle with the concept of, can I, can someone make this play happen? Is it possible to stage this play? Yes. Um, so that's a conversation that people have in the theater all the time, impossible stage directions, yeah. right? But the, the what what's so beautiful about the theater that you learn over time, being a theater artist, being a, a person who studies performance, is that you can do anything on stage. Um, a friend of mine is directing a, a, a very famous play right now, Eurydice by, by Sarah Rule, and there's tons of impossible stage directions in it. You know, stage directions that can never really be done. You know, like the world explodes open <laughs> into a thousand beautiful pieces and falls from the sky. Like, how do you do that? Right. Well, the, the beautiful thing about theater is we know it's not going to happen, but how are you going to create imagery that that speaks to us metaphorically and becomes those things, right? The work of the actor, well, you know, we were just saying that the work of the actor happens a lot in dialogue, but most actor training is is fiercely physical, yeah. right? I, I was trained in a physical, you know, for physical theater, um, and actors are athletes, most always, uh, and they're they're interested in doing things with the space that subvert your expectations of what space can do. So all of a sudden, you're on the ocean. Right. And and you're going to know you're on the ocean because lights are going to change. There's going to be some kind of set movement. Maybe there's going to be different sounds. There's going to be music. And then the actors are going to use their bodies to tell you a story. Um, and, and so you don't have to be in the middle of the ocean with a camera and freezing and you don't have to be there. Um, you can instead be in a black box theater and we're going to believe that you're in the ocean. Um, the, the, the theater has no limitations. It really does not. The limitation is your imagination and what you can do in terms of design. And designers are, you know, they, they're, you know, thank God yeah, for designers. I, I am not a designer. <laughs> um, I they really are. And they make, they make it all happen. Right. Um, they make it happen, but not literally, right? Somehow it happens and it's all metaphor. And yet, you know, oh, we're on the ocean now uh, because of lights and some kind of movement and there's fabric and the way that the actors are moving, right? And that's actually partially why I love the theater so much uh, because it isn't always so literal. You know, I, I find that a lot of media... I love media. Sure. You know, later tonight I'm probably going to watch a movie. I, I love it, um, but it's so dependent on realism. Yeah, really is right. It's d- deeply dependent on realism, and like you know, film is inherently related to realism. They kind of were invented at the same time. Uh, they came to be in the same historical moment, but um, you know, the theater is 
is ancient and and is much more has has a has a maybe deeper relationship with like you know epic poetry the Iliad and the Odyssey than it does with um, film so so that is an aspect of the theater that that I really enjoy uh, you know as an artist well I was earlier I was reading um I was reading a play by John Patrick Shanley um mm-hmm. uh what was it called Out West uh, it's in his like Welcome to the Moon collection that's older play. But it's one of that one of those things that you just said where uh, the cowboys in the play, uh, you know, pre in, in his like pre-play descriptions, he's like their guns should not look real, and in fact, mm-hmm. it's probably better if they just use their hands and pretend like they have guns. Absolutely. And I don't know. It, it kind of blew my mind because I'm not, you know, a a, a, a stage play expert or a playwright or anything. Um, I'm, you know, I'm learning, but that concept of just being like, just pretend like they have guns. Don't even give them anything. Just have their fingers. Because that doesn't really matter. Right. Right. That's not, it's not about the props. Right. Right. It's not about any of that. It's, that's not the core action of the story. Uh, And it isn't really dependent on realism. So he, so Shanley there, I mean, he's a genius. Sure. Yeah. um, Is, is, experimenting what what can i do how can i tell this story in a way that kind of subverts the expectation of realism because we don't want to you know it doesn't all have to be completely literal what's so exciting to me to think about not even just in his play because like you said he's a genius so it's one of those things where you're like okay yeah we get it john um you're a genius um but just the idea of being like listen you know what a gun looks like everyone in here knows what a gun looks like (laughs) This is the story's not about that. Like you said, it's it's not the props. That's such an exciting concept to me <laughs> uh, to to be able to tell a story and just be like, yeah, yeah, they're in a car. You go. You, every one yeah. of you drew drove a car here. You know what it looks like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. seriously. Yeah. Like you, they're in a car, whatever. It's such an exciting thing. And maybe that's elementary level like playwriting, but it's so exciting to me to think about that. Yeah. I mean, the theater. I, you know, I once, one of the most influential plays uh, in my history that, uh, you know, remembering great things that I've seen in the theater that changed me was a play called One Fleece Fair by Naomi Wallace. And I saw it done in, uh, when I was in acting school, it was done at um, Boston University. And it, was incredibly formative. And it's a play in which a bunch of people, this is pre-COVID, by the way, many years before. Uh, it, it takes place during the last great outbreak of the bubonic plague in London in 1666. And it's about a bunch of people who are kind of, they've been nailed into their house with like boards. This is what they did yeah. to make sure yeah. that people did, so that they wouldn't continue to spread the plague. If it was around you in any way, you were nailed into your house for 28 days. And so it all takes place in this house and the way that the designers did it was they like created this house, but it was made out of string, right? So there's like these wires. So you know, it's a house, but we have to see inside of it, right? Right. How are we going to, how are we going to convey that it's a house and they can't get out, but you have to be able to see Everything that goes on inside. Oh, string. That's so right. Cool. String creates a square type house, but you can see inside. 
but it just suggests the walls of the house on all sides, the shape of the house, and then you can see inside. And I remember that kind of blowing my mind. Um, and then the play itself, for other reasons, her use of language and imagery is incredible. Um, and but yeah, I mean, design, that's that's the joy of the theater. Right. If that kind of stuff excites you, then go take go go sign up for, you know, some community theater stuff or uh, theater course and start kind of, you know, thinking outside of of the box a little bit in terms of how how to tell stories in a different way. Yeah. The other stuff that you've written, you know, you've written a play about Medusa called Medusa Undone. Uh, you wrote did, yeah. one about an alien invasion called Speed of Light, uh, which I <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I'm probably about right in the middle of reading. Uh, and very and very much enjoying it. You wrote a feminist retelling of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Indeed, all these things very very powerful visually. I the from a writing standpoint because I I got to screenplays first. That hit me when I was pretty young. But a thing you hear a lot is don't direct on the page. You know, don't direct in in the in the screenplay. Is there a similar like? Do they say is there a similar worry for writing a a, a play? Or, or, and this is another sort of question, I guess, kind of nestled in this one. When does the writing actually stop for the play? Because you can do rehearsals and you can almost even like earlier, you were talking about, you know, the, the lights and the fabric and uh, the ocean coming to life. And I guess that's more theoretical, but the idea of like the writing is still taking place as yeah. you're doing rehearsals because all of these other people are helping turn the the writing into its like next version. Um, so two questions. Is there a similar uh, worry about directing on the page? And when do you think the writing is actually done for a play? Wow. <laughs> this is this is like such questions. They're so big. They're so big. Okay. So um, the theater is inherently collaborative. Yeah. Uh, and in the theater, the playwright is kind of uh, a figure who is deeply connected to the play. And that isn't really so in film. Um, film is a little bit more, and by a little bit, I mean a lot, uh, is a lot more death of the author centric. The, the writer is kind of not, is very, very secondary to the director. And that is not true in the theater, or at least it should not be. And if you're a playwright listening and, and you're, and you're like, wait, the director doesn't let me hang out, then contact the guild right away. See, I wonder. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, um, the, the, the thing about theater is that it is not, it is not created in isolation you can't make it alone so i sit and i i i write a script right and then i will get actors and and a dramaturg who is essential uh, a dramaturg is essential someone who really understands where to cut where to expand what to what to really kind of nosh on right and read it then you go back and you rewrite, then you read it again. You make a pot of chili and invite a bunch of people <laughs> over. You read it again. Um, and then you talk about it and you rehash. And then only after, I would say, three rewrites, do you go into rehearsal. 
and you have to be there. And the way that I think about rehearsal with a director is that we're equal, is that we're, we're co-directors and co-playwrights, essentially. From that moment on, I sit next to them. We talk. She tells me this isn't working. I tell her, I don't know about that moment. It's not quite what I'm visualizing. She helps me see where I have not done my job. And I help her see my vision because this, this vision is mine, right? And she helps me kind of hone it for the first time. Now, this is not true for published plays with de- dead playwrights, right? That's not, then the director kind of takes the reins, of course. Um, but if you're workshopping new work, I am rewriting in the room with the guidance of the director and the dramaturg. And they are helping me realize they have more spatial awareness in general. I mean, directors are really good at like, this is going to look this way and you're going to want people here and we're going to want levels and all that stuff. Uh, That's not where my MFA is. That's, you know, maybe someday, but not right now. So I do not stop writing a play for quite a long time. Even, Even, you know, generally we freeze two weeks before open. But, but, you know, the because the actor, we got to be respectful to the actors. I mean, thank you. Thank you, actors, right? We got to be respectful to them. They go on. I'm still rewriting for production number two. Then production number two happens. The script is in a great space. I come in. Maybe I even make a couple of more changes. I mean, I've had many, many productions of the Aurora Project, and I still tweak that play all the time all the time. Same thing with Speed of Light, although I haven't had a production of that one in a while, Um, but I would tweak it. I totally would. And, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's stories of, of great play of Tony Kushner tweaking Angels in America during, you know, during the signature theater production uh, in 2009 with Zach Quinto and, um, and uh, Toby, no, not Toby McGuire, the other Spider-Man. What's his name? (laughs) Andrew Garfield. (laughs) Andrew Garfield. Yeah. You know, he was tweaking that, like sitting in the back, like tweaking it. Right. It's like, dude, like, it's really good. Yeah, you don't no, it's, <laughs> it's Angels in America. Leave it alone. <laughs> but he's still doing it. And, and playwrights can do that because we own our work forever. Well, I also think the, the thing that I, that I've read that, you know, helped me generate that idea is, you know, I've read other playwrights talk about, I went to rehearsal and this line falls flat. This line doesn't sound natural. It just flies in the face of the the other editing advice that you always get, which is like, put it away, take your hands off of it and just let it go and let it be. And the idea that you can continually hone it because it's a living It's a living thing. thing. It's live. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess... I do want to emphasize, don't don't obsess over one project for too sure. long, right? Be writing other plays. Absolutely. Write your play, put it away for a while, make your pot of chili, invite over your actor friends, read it, maybe tweak it a little bit, write a new play, right? Like, don't be obsessed over one project for too long. I think that's also a trap. But, but you know, the... I think there's a danger in being like, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that oftentimes what separates the, the men from the boys or the women from the girls is that the playwright who's willing to go into that rehearsal room and, and, and kill some darlings, right? And kind of 
see what's working and not working and to face that and to do some serious rewriting and some serious thinking about structure. And those are the plays that, that, you know, get the development opportunities that, that are, that are, that are produced essentially uh, on some level, Uh, you know, of course there's things that happen, there's blips everywhere, but the skill of rewriting in the room that, I mean, that's what you go to graduate school to learn how to do, or at least that's kind of my, was my graduate school experience. Um, What is it like to be in the rehearsal room to keep honing your work, to recognize it's not the only play that you have in the, in the pipeline of your, of your artistry, but for this particular play at this moment, it is time to buckle down. Now it takes less time to write a play than it takes to write a novel, right? You might write the rough draft of a play in a couple of weeks or a month, right? But plays take years to write because it's not just that rough draft. It's going into rehearsal. It's here having several readings and then rewriting and being in rehearsal and honing and honing and honing and then going to the sector, the rehearsals of the second production and honing and honing and honing. And then maybe it's done. And that's, you know, a couple of years later. Um, so that's my experience. And that's how I write. There are playwrights who don't write that way, but that's how I do it. <laughs> so do you think there's any value? Well, obviously there's value in, in the act of writing just full stop, but the value in writing a play where you're, you say, okay, I'm going to write this play and I'm not even going to try to get it staged. I just want to, I need to get this story out of me and see what happens. I guess the, for me, the, the, the step between writing a play and then having someone stage it, whether you're the director or someone else is the director, I'm trying to wrap my head around the, like the value of a, of a play that you're writing that never gets staged. And if it's, if it feels unfinished. Yes. Always. Well, Okay, so let's let's back up just a little. Yeah. The theater is a live medium of storytelling and it is the actor's medium. So I do not write plays for any other reason than to have them performed. I don't write a play thinking of publication. I don't write a play thinking that I'm just going to send it to people to read on the page. In fact, I don't want them to read it on, I mean, I do, but like, I don't (laughs) really want them (laughs) to read it on the page. I want them to come to the theater and see it on stage. Uh, And, and really interestingly, um, that's how I know that I'm a theater artist because I'm not thinking of like the other stuff. I'm thinking of opening night yeah. Um, and, and I'm thinking of the audience and that relationship between the actors and the audience and the magic of the liveness of theater is why I know first that I'm a theater artist. And then second, that, that the medium of playwriting is the right medium for me to be writing in. Is it great to have a play published? It's divine, right? Like it's wonderful. Right. But I want them to be done Yeah, on stage. Uh, and I know, you know, when people tell me that they've read my plays, I'm always like, oh, that's great. But immediately I'm like, they've missed so much. Well, that's for, I love reading screenplays and, and stage plays. And I love reading first of all, but I also, I had, I had someone some one time give me a script. Hey, will you read this? Yes. Okay. I read it. What'd you think of it? Oh yeah, it was good. Like, oh, that's all you thought about it? I'm like, yeah, but it's not the finished thing. 
this is a step towards the thing that you're trying to make. It doesn't matter what, like how good this script is. It is not the thing. The movie Michael Clayton. I only bring it up because I just was reading the script earlier. I think it's a perfect film. The script is nowhere near as entertaining as like two minutes of the movie because it's just impossible, sure. which is why the the concept of like, okay, I wrote this, I wrote a play. Um, it hasn't been staged, but it exists. Um, so it's technically not finished. <laughs> like it's not the thing and it can't ever be as entertaining as, as the play would be. It, it has to be staged because that's why it, it exists. <laughs> yep. And it, it, you know, I'm thinking about some scholarship that some performance scholarship that um, is somewhat well known, but, but it's funny because like, and and when it's not being performed at any moment that it's not being performed, like, like I, like none of my plays are being performed right now that I know of. Um, And, and like, so they're all kind of dead. Like they don't exist in this moment right they don't exist and and that's very different than like a book which like it kind of always or rather it doesn't exist when you're not reading it right it's the act of reading it that kind of brings it off the page and makes it you know you kind of create a world in your mind and for every moment that your play is not being done is it dead does it does it not exist is it done Right. That's why it's so like, I don't know if the play is done. I have to see it again. You know what I mean? Like, I have to be at the theater to tell you, is it done? And and maybe I have had moments where I feel like, yes, it's done. Right. Oh, I've had I actually felt that way about Speed of Light at one point. And then I saw another production of it. Different actors, different designers, different theater, different director. And then I was like, oh, no, it's not done. Right. So like you can like it's all dependent on that moment in the theater, the the liveness of that moment with that particular combination of actors and director. Yeah. Which is why like the question is like philosophically, it's kind of a philosophical paradox, you know? So. <laughs> which is a, a great thing that theater can, can be. I, I mean, I'm sure there are yep. philosophical paradoxes for, or paradox, I don't know what the plural is, for, for film. <laughs> but theater there's just so much (laughs) there's just so much going on one thing i was curious about if you have had this experience is if theater is defined in a lot of people's minds or even just people that you have encountered throughout your life by the art forms that it's not that Mm. that people are like well yeah but it's not a movie uh and it's not a book and, you know, narration, there's an actor who maybe turns to the audience. And that has seemed to, to be my experience growing up. But also I grew up in essentially a cornfield that playwriting was not a, a thing anyone really cared about. And it always seemed to me like somebody was like, well, why would I want to go see a play when I could go see a movie? Which was upsetting to me, even as a person who was not uh, like insanely into plays. Has that been your experience or no? Um. Well, yes and no. Um, Yes, because I think that a lot of the population feels that way. But no, because I've been around theater people since I was very, very young. Yeah. So like a like a little kid, I was put into essentially I I was 
taking acting of some kind from the time I was like 13 and doing plays from the time I was like six. So yes, I, I've heard this as well. I've definitely heard this. And, and, and sure, I, I think that if you feel that way, then it's true for you. Yeah. But I would just kind of gesture towards the fact that theater came first. Yeah. Theater is the first imitative art yeah. form. Theater is probably about the same age as the cave paintings, right? We're talking about like, when did the first caveman get up and like imitate the the chase for the buffalo yeah. and like what happened, right? Like, so that is probably about as old as the, as the cave paintings of the buffalo being chased. You know what I mean? Like it's the same thing. One is imitative, one is imagery. And so like to, to, <laughs> to say like, why would I want to go? It's like, okay, sure. There's technology now, but you have to, you have to concede sure. that that prior to the technology of film, television, and radio, this I mean I mean, prior to the 1920s, the theater was the most popular form of media in the world, right? Like it, it, it you, that's what you did after work. Yep. <laughs> like people went to the like. No, I'm serious. Like people went to the theater three times a week, right? Like how often do you watch a movie? Uh, twice a week, right? And that's, you would go to the theater instead. That's what, that's what people did for fun. A hundred percent. I was reading um, an Orson Welles biography and there's a couple pictures in there of the premiere of his, I can't, I think, I think it might've been Hamlet or Macbeth. I can't remember which one, but the amount of people in front oh, yeah. of the theater it is like it, it it is like a a giant film premiere like you would see yes. now deck there's just like hundreds maybe a, a, over a thousand people trying to just get a peek of of what's going yeah. on and and plays you know does theater reach as many people as film and television no right and it never will and like there's a lot of conversations about that should we be filming these things and putting them up on platforms so that people can access theater so that theater can become accessible? I mean, I, I think that one of the major problems with the art form is accessibility. What's your thought on that filming and, and uh, I, I'm a hundred percent for it, right? National theater live that that's what they, that's they for many years. They didn't, they wanted to keep this, separation between what's film and what and what's theater but now it's like post pandemic it's like there's there's no good reason to keep doing this right there's absolutely no good reason have an amazing like have an amazing filmed version of the play <laughs> um and and a platform upon which all the broadway plays you can buy them and watch the filmed version it's still a play Right. You're watching it on the stage. I would subscribe immediately. I would subscribe. I mean, I have some subscribers. (laughs) Like, yes, like um, there's uh, there's a a teaching tool. I'm a professor of theater and and, uh, theater performance. And um, 
there's a teaching tool called Digital Theater Live. You can't access it unless your institution has it. But I will admit to you that I sometimes go on there and I'm like, what can I watch? Heck yeah. Like, you know, the, the Crucible from, uh, you know, the David Armitage. Uh, Armitage uh, oh, God, what was the I think that's his name. David Armitage did a, a version of the Crucible on West End several years ago, maybe 2014 or something. Um, it's an amazing production. Like, why would I mean? I'd rather watch that than like a lot of like shitty movies on Netflix. I, I found clips of on the at the I think the West End has a YouTube channel, and I just found like three minute clips, and I was like, what? Are there whole plays on here? And no, there's not. Yeah, there's not. But there's a lot of like discussion about that now. Like, can we make theater more accessible so that people can see the really awesome things that happen in the theater? You know, why would I why would I see a play instead of going to a movie or watching television? It's a really good question. It's a really good question post pandemic. Um, my initial response is to go back to that idea of subversion right like the theater isn't always going to be literal um and the stories told there might make you look uh look at storytelling through a more artistic lens yeah and it 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 is an art form that has continued to evolve even after the invention of technology i mean i mean television was literally <laughs> if you go back and you look at like the very first like ads for tv they were very pointed in like wanting to kill theater right so if you think about the live studio audience it's a theater yep well that's theater <laughs> right like live like right like the laugh track and like people watching it's supposed to look like a theater and it was supposed to in many ways replace the theater and it's set up that way for a reason because they got this great idea. Well, what if we could bring it to you through through the television? Of course, it it didn't kill theater. Theater will never die. Um, it's been dying for twenty five hundred years. <laughs> but that you know, it won't happen. It continued to evolve. And film too, like film is very young, right? Film is a little over a hundred, barely, yeah. And yeah, you know what I mean. It's a very very young art form, and it has so much incredible potential. Uh, and so much is going to happen, and 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 like I admit, I concede that of of course, but I I don't think it means that this other art form that does other things has to kind of disappear because of it. Right. Right. They're different. They're different. Well, wrapping up, I'm so I'm super excited that I found your stuff and to see all of the things that are possible, especially as a sci-fi fan. To find sci-fi plays was a thrill for me. I was very, very excited by that. So let's say someone is, is a writer, hasn't ever written a play before. How would you suggest to them to rather than just starting, because that's a, that's a great way to just start doing it. Uh, maybe a way to sort of more purposefully uh, get started uh, writing a play. What's the, the way you would sort of push them to, or guide them. How about that? The an advice I'd give to someone who wants to write a play. Yeah. For the first time. If you know nothing about it, that's excellent. <laughs> I know I'm telling it's 100% true. Yeah. 100% serious serious because theater is about imagination and the impossible stage directions will be dealt with by the designers. And so I won't say just write, although that's what you should that's do. What, yeah, it's hard to, I, it's hard I, to beat I that. Say, 
Yeah, I mean, I will say take an acting class. Okay. You will learn so much about writing plays. I mean, that's take an acting class or take an online playwriting class. There are tons of them. Uh, Playwright Center has tons of them. You could you could go to dramatoskill.com, sign up for a playwriting class. They're all kind of online now. They're over Zoom. And there's, there's always uh, a class to take. And there's always like beginner, like write your first one act, write your first 10 minute play, get the ideas out. So invest in something like that. Or invest in an acting class. Go, you know, look at your community, you know, your little community ledger. There's always like a acting class. Drop in, right? Learn about action, right? Learn what an action is, action objective tactic, all these things that, the, you know, that's what acting is. What do I want? What's in my way? What are the tactics I'm going to employ to get what I want? And if you know that, then you just kind of like put yourself in for every character, right? It's like, okay, what does this person want? And then the, their, their scene partner wants this and they're going to fight about it. Taking, I mean, the reason why I became a playwright uh, was because the mystery of it, like the romantic kind of like at the, at the uh, typewriter, like that whole mystery was totally taken out of it for me because I had trained as an actor, right? For, sev- for many years. So because I had trained as an actor and I knew all of that lingo and I knew how to think in terms of action, objective, tactic, conflict, moment before, all that stuff, it was like, oh, and so then you just do it for everyone. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's, that's how I became a playwright because acting and playwriting are very, they're, they're very close to each other. In, in my opinion. Now, I do know playwrights who, who were never actors and also they're great playwrights. And that's, um, you know, that's a whole other thing. But I, I would say that if I had never had that demystified, I don't know if I would have started to write plays because it maybe it was too intimidating or, or whatever. Or, I, you know, I thought maybe I wouldn't be able to do it or never had. I mean, like, who was a playwright? How many playwrights do you know? I didn't know any. Yeah. So it was something that came to me a little bit later when I kind of became a, a late, late teens, early 20s. So I would say that take an acting class, take an online playwriting class, just start writing. So, yeah, I think those are great uh, pieces of advice. And yeah, it is hard to, to beat the just start writing because <laughs> that's yes, it's so good. It's hard to beat <laughs> It's so good. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and, and come on and, and sharing some insights into what you do and how you do it. And I, it's it was awesome chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, this was so fun. And thank you again to you for listening to this. Uh, again, don't forget, go to bellapointon.com. You can even go to bellapointon.com slash plays to see a list of Bella's plays, which you can actually read on a website called New Play Exchange. So make sure you check those out. Thank you again to Bella for chatting with me. It was a ton of fun. I could see that we definitely could talk about Star Wars for a lot longer than we did. So I, as you heard, cut that a little bit short. But maybe again, we'll have Bella on and chat about Star Wars, sci-fi, and some more playwriting as well. 
Uh, swing by my website, austinrwilson.com. Follow me everywhere you can find me online if you so choose. Like, subscribe, do all those things. Write reviews and recommend the show to other people. It really helps get it in front of people and helps me to continue to do this. February is going to be a busy month for me, so keep your eyes out for more interviews. We'll see you then. Thank you.